If you'll please stand for the reading of God's word. This morning we'll be reading from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. You can find it on page 589 in the blue Bibles that are located in front of you. If you do not have a Bible of your own or you know someone who's in need of a Bible, please feel free to take one of these home with you. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense for anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Thus says God's word. Heavenly Father, we come and, and Lord, with the fresh heart of hearing these songs that proclaim that Jesus reigns, that we have declared that our heart is to give all glory to you, Christ alone. God, we pray that you would do a work in us through our remainder, remaining time together, Lord, that we would, God, be people who were, who took our, the sentiment of our heart, that Jesus reigns, that Christ receive all glory, God, and, and make it something that, that works itself out in our lives, God. Father, we pray that we would be a people who, um, boldly proclaim the truth of the gospel, and that what we have received by grace and grace alone, God, we would would see the joy of others who who learn of you, who hear of you, who submit their lives to you, God, and that that your gospel would go forth and your church would expand, God, and that the world would be dramatically impacted by those who turn to the truth. So, God, we recognize our, our faultiness, our weakness. In this regard, and we pray that you would do a work by your Holy Spirit to empower us, Lord, to become what we need to be, Lord, to to value what we need to value, to embrace what we need to embrace, to forsake what we need to forsake, and to and to cling to you with both hands by faith, Lord. And and God, I, I just pray that as we share these things today, that you would help us to hear. God, help me to speak in a way that brings glory and brings about the result that you have called for in your word. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So good to have you here this morning. I've, I've uh, just had a wonderful morning enjoying the presence of the Lord with you in worship. Um, I want to just uh, take a moment and really thank you. I get the honor of giving this this. Uh, this thankfulness and expressing my gratitude once a quarter. Last week, as you know, um, we took our missions offering. We had, uh, we were short of our $600,000 commitment as we began service last week, about $600, $650 or so. And you guys responded in faith. You responded in generosity. And last week we collected $2,500, the balance of which will go to next month or next quarter's uh, missions offering. So thank you so much. We have, God has just blessed this little church so much. We've never, ever, ever missed a missions offering because of your generosity. And so we're so very thankful uh, for everything you do. I want to also take this time to give you one quick uh, reminder of the Contend Conference coming up uh, in two weeks. And we are, man, we are just so excited. It's going to be a great time together. If you haven't signed up out in the foyer, there's these uh, QR codes that will take you right to the registration page. There's no cost at all to sign up, to be a part of it. We just have limited space. So when we hit that number, there will be no more registrations. And so we want all of you to get to be there, so do that. One of the things that we're going to do that's very unique on the evening, so we have a Friday evening session, we have a Saturday morning session, and then Saturday evening, we're actually, even though this is taking place at Flatland Bible Church, we're actually going to gather back here, um, and we have decided that with the with the participating churches that we're going to do like we did at Thanksgiving and have a big potluck right here. A lot of you guys have been asking for more of those, and so we're going to do that with our 
sister churches. And so we, we, what we need from you is, and, and a lot of times I, I make a joke about how we're the world's worst church at signing up at the last minute. Please, by all means, there's a sign-up sheet in the back. Uh, let us know that you are going to be there and that you will bring something um, for that. What we're going to do that evening, well, we'll, we'll have the table set up and we'll have uh, a meal uh, with, with, that we'll share with the other churches. But we're going to have a roundtable discussion with Austin Keeler and the pastors that are in our organization. And um, and we're going to just take your questions, whatever questions might have popped up during the, uh, the conference. And so it's going to be a fantastic time. You won't want to miss it. And uh, But what we need you, uh, ladies, I'm talking mostly to you, some of you guys. Justice, I see you back there, and I know you're you're artisan when it comes to the, making the food. Um, but sign up today, please. Don't leave. Don't let your spouse leave till they sign up so we know we have enough food for everybody. Um, so what we're asking is that you bring enough for your own family and maybe three other people, only because we have a few people that are coming from out of town, and we don't want to restrict them from being able to come. So if you would do that, we'll have plenty of food, and it'll be a great time. So I'm ready to get into the Word. We're continuing our series entitled On to Maturity. This is the fourth week. We'll have one more after this, and then we're going to move into something exciting uh, to, to uh, you know follow up. Um, and what we're doing with this series is we're seeking the furthest horizon of Christian living. And it, it doesn't matter where you're starting if you just became a believer, if you've just begun to to take your walk with Christ seriously, or if you've been doing it for decades, this message is is designed for you. In pursuing Christ, the reason it's designed for you is because in pursuing Christ, I think most of you know that we never arrive at the goal in this life. There's always more to know. There's always more to experience. There's always more to to um, gain from pursuing Christ, um, but instead of frustrating us that we, you know, there's there's no finish line in this life, we find that the pursuit, the pursuit itself, is actually the source of our greatest joy because in this pursuit we find grace, and in this pursuit. We find Jesus himself as we are, as we're seeking him. He said in the Old Testament, seek me and you will find me. And so that's what, that's what the whole idea of grow, going on in maturity is. Paul talked about this in Philippians chapter three. Um, he said it like this. He said, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature, there's our word, let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we've attained. And so Paul guides us in several significant ways here. First, Paul, now think about who Paul is. Paul is the one who met Christ face to face on the road to Damascus, dramatic conversion experience. He was the Holy Spirit's chosen instrument to write the majority of the New Testament for us. And he, but he says, this Paul says along with all of us, I haven't reached my goal. I am not yet perfect. And I would ask you, isn't that reassuring that Paul said that? That's reassuring, isn't it? But he's not... He's not taking a stance that is apathetic or lazy or even fatalistic. On the contrary, he says this, I press on to make it my own. He's moving forward. He's reaching new heights and he's experiencing deeper levels of grace and divine assistance daily. And his basis for moving forward is this. It's that Christ has already ensured his success. Now, if the other was reassuring, isn't that reassuring? Christ has already uh, ensured his success. He says, I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. It is Christ that is compelling him to move forward because Christ has already revolutionized his life by changing it from darkness to light, from sin to life. 
Christ's victory is what made it possible for Paul to make any progress whatsoever. And guess what? It is Christ's victory on the cross. It's Christ, all that he purchased for you, that makes it possible for you to make any progress whatsoever. Without what Christ has done, Paul's spiritual momentum and yours would be impossible. So when he says, I press on, Paul is not talking about earning salvation through his good works. He's reaching for all the benefits that Christ has made available to him by his redemptive work on the cross. Now that's the first thing. But second, Paul strives to put unproductive things behind him. His history, and believe me, Paul had a history. He arrested Christians His sinful desires, his habits, his ungodly attitudes. He wants to put all that behind him and press toward the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Now, what do we mean when we say the high calling of God in Christ Jesus? In the church I grew up in, I thought that meant when you heard a still small voice that meant you were a preacher now, whether you wanted to be or not. But that's not what it means. This isn't speaking of a vocational call. It's speaking of the call that the Holy Spirit gives to come out of the world, come out of the flesh, and into sainthood by believing the gospel. That is the high call of God in Christ Jesus. That he's calling you from death to life. Paul actually addresses both the Roman church and the first and the, the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians to those, he, he writes it like this, to those who are called to be saints. All of the true Christians who make up those churches and the church that exists today, this is true for us as well. All believers are called to be saints and to be saints by moving forward. Paul says forward progress is the mark of maturity we've been talking about. But he cautions us to hold on to what we obtain as we go further. Philippians 3.16, we just read it. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So with all that in mind, we press on to consider another area where we must strive for maturity or greater maturity in Christ. We've considered a greater engagement with the Bible, and I hope that that did something for you, and that you're reading your Bible more and thinking more about Scripture. We talked about a more determined prayer life, and I'm hoping that you're setting aside time to really communicate with God through prayer. Last week we talked about an increased purity of our worship, and I hope that there were things that you took home and applied from that. But today we're going to add an expanded commitment to the Great Commission of Jesus. Now what am I speaking of when I say the Great Commission? This is how Jesus said it, the end of Matthew, right before he ascends to heaven where he is now. It says, and Jesus came and said to them, listen to this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Man, what is impossible to us when Jesus says all authority is given to me? Verse 19, go therefore, go therefore, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That's what we were participating in last week with our missions offering. We were, we were contributing to a work that makes disciples, not just here in Lubbock, Texas or on this corner of 11th place in Milwaukee, but that it would make disciples all around the world. How do we do that? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the the age. Look at the promises that bookend this commandment of God. All authority, Jesus says, is mine. And I am sending you forth, not in your own authority, Not in the authority of the governments under which you live, but I'm sending you forth under my authority. And it's all my authority is what Christ is saying. But then he wraps it up by saying this. And hey, when I send you out in my authority, you're not going alone. Because I will be personally with you till the end of the age. So the Great Commission involves three things, not just one thing. It involves making disciples not just converts, but making disciples from people of, uh, from every corner of the globe. It involves initiating them into the church, into the body. You cannot win somebody to Christ and keep them out of the body. The, the body and the, and, and the gospel go together. 
The, when people get saved, they get saved into Jesus and belong to the church. Amen? And then, thirdly, it involves continuously teaching them to obey Jesus. That's what happens here every Sunday morning, every uh, Wednesday night, every ladies group, every men's group. Uh, we're, we're teaching you to obey Jesus. Our mandate to do so comes from the truth, as I said, that all authority belongs to Jesus in heaven and earth and that he will always be with us. And yet, the reason this message, I believe, is, is, is important and significant is because a survey of Christians, even a show of hands in most churches, shows that we have very little commitment to this mandate and very little activity in doing it. Instead of, as Christ called us, being cities on a hill, many of us are, are woefully uninvolved and even unconcerned with the lost people that we encounter every day. And this church should not be the way of things. And yet, before I begin, let me set your mind at ease. I don't think that either hyping you up or beating you up is the answer to the problem. I don't think either one of those is going to solve any of the problem that keeps us from sharing the gospel with our friends, our loved ones, our neighbors. But we have to... When Jesus calls us to something so clearly and we find in an examination of our life that we're not doing it, we have to take a hard look at our devotion, our understanding of the gospel, and our own fears so that we might grow in this commandment that God has called us to, this commitment to evangelism. Now I have to, I have to, conscience and integrity mean that I have to make a caveat before I begin. Throughout this series, since we began a few weeks ago, I've tried to be transparent with you and told you that I have a lot of growing to do when it comes to engaging with the scriptures. I have a ton of growing to do in the way, the effectiveness, the passion of my praying, and I want my worship to be increasingly pure. And today's message, however, I've got to be honest with you, hits me where I live. That's the dirty little secret about preaching. Before it ever gets to you, it has to roto-root its way through me first. And it hits me where I live because I do not come close to living a life that is satisfactorily evangelistic. I miss more opportunities than I take, and I hate it. And I'm hoping to mature in this regard as well as I hope you are. So our text from 1 Peter this morning can be extremely helpful to guys like me. And maybe guys like you, ladies like you. The purpose of 1 Peter, the whole book, is to call people to endure persecution. When being a Christian in first century Roman Empire was a very difficult thing to do. With peace. Paganism and emperor worship carried the day, and Paul addresses the hardships faced by believers in his time in each chapter of this epistle. It is the consistent theme chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, chapter four, chapter five. And here, when we find ourselves in the middle of chapter three, he begins with instruction not about persecution or enduring persecution, but for having a Christ honoring marriage. Men and women, there are some great things that you should look into in that passage. But he moves right from that into guidelines to lead the church that is called to suffer for righteousness' sake. The cost to the church has never changed. All of us, from the time of Christ's ascension till now and, and, and going on after us, all the church is called to suffer. This is why the prosperity gospel is such an abomination. It absolutely ignores the call of the gospel to suffer for Christ and to endure it patiently. And our text this morning picks up in the middle of those instructions on how to endure suffering, and they prove helpful for modern Christians. Now let's look at it again. If you want to look it up in your Bible, you can. First Peter 3 and verse 13, he says this. This is Peter talking to the people that are undergoing persecution. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for doing what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. 
have no fear of them, nor be troubled. What is he saying? His point isn't that if we do good, everyone, uh, that no one will treat us poorly. If we do good, if we win, if we're winsome, as the popular term is now, that, that no one will ever be mean to us. But his point is this, that whatever suffering or persecution or affliction we might have to endure, he's saying it's only temporal. It doesn't last forever. And more importantly than that, he's saying that God sees it. And God is aware of it. And God knows what is going on and how you're being treated. In fact, he emphasizes the fact that if we suffer innocently, in other words, you know, you can't like uh, go commit mass murder and be thrown in prison and talk about how you're being persecuted. That's not what he's saying. He's saying if we suffer because of our innocence and we maintain our righteousness, that we're promised a blessing and a reward. And, and this reality... All of us are going to suffer to some degree as Christians, but this reality should temper our experience of suffering, relieving our anxieties, relieving our discouragement about the suffering itself. It's it's temporary. It will not follow us into heaven. And Jesus sees it even now. But this is where he goes from, it's where he goes from here rather, that should grab our particular attention for our, t- our subject today. So he's told us to endure suffering well and, and, and you know, to trust the Lord. But in verse 15, he says this, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So what's happening here in in the structure of Peter's letter? In the center of his letter, chapter 3 of 5, in the center of this particular chapter, and in the center of a passage that deals with suffering and persecution, Peter calls us to make a bold defense for the gospel. Now, that, that that went way past many of you. But what I'm saying is, Peter didn't say, pray that the persecution will let up so that you can preach the gospel. He didn't say, pray that you won't have to endure these terrible things from Rome or the people you work with or the people in your neighborhood so that you'll be able to preach the gospel. He says, smack in the middle of it. Be ready. Be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And if you're paying attention, he gives us crystal clear instructions on how to do that faithfully in all circumstances. When there's very little to none persecution or when it's intense. He says, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Notice that, please pay attention to this, obedient Gospel witness results from this counsel. He says, in your hearts. See, being a light in a dying world doesn't begin with what you know. It begins with what you love. That's where being an effective gospel witness starts. Not all the the theological distinctives that you know, but what do you love? We must in our proclamation of the gospel, be driven, absolutely driven by our affections. When we get our dream house, when we get our dream car, perhaps we win the heart of our secret love and make them our spouse. How many of us struggle to talk about that? To proclaim it? To let people know of our good circumstance? Of course we don't struggle to do that. Why? Because of love. We love the house. We love the car. We love the man or the woman. Our appreciation and love for the person or the thing makes communicating that love almost second nature. It's almost reflexive to communicate our our love and devotion to that thing or that person. So my question is, 
borrowing three terms from Scripture, if Christ truly is the pearl of great price, if He is the desire of all nations, if He is our beloved, that reality I present to you cannot remain bottled up. I didn't say it should not remain bottled up. I said it cannot remain bottled up. If it is bottled up, we have to examine ourselves and see if, as, as uh, Christ said to the churches in Revelation, if our, if our first love, our love that drew us to Christ, has grown cold. Or, worse yet, if our professed love for Christ and His kingdom were ever really genuine in the first place. If we can't open our mouth, And talk of the one we love, that we ostensibly love above all others. And how does the love we feel to Christ find this expression? Peter says it like this, we honor Christ the Lord. This means to lovingly submit to his lordship, recognizing his ways and his thoughts are higher than ours. We don't make provision for our demands. We don't make provision for our preferences. We don't make provision for our passions when they are opposed to his will. But we honor Christ, not only as Lord, as the one who is sovereign and supremely in charge. We honor him, Peter says, as holy. Because of his transcendence, we give the highest priority to the way he sees things, even at the risk or at the cost of losing favor with the culture, losing favor with our families, losing favor with those we once called our friends. See, close inspection will show us that our resistance to speaking boldly about Christ is almost rooted, almost always rooted in the fact that first, we don't honor him as Lord. He's not in control. He's not the boss. Instead, we maintain control of our lives. We demand our rights. And secondly, that we don't regard him, Christ the Lord, as holy. We regard him as our weekend activity, our Sunday morning activity, our accessory to our life to make us respectable. And when we do that, we're regarding him as common with no regard at all for his holiness. What evangelistic fires would consume the church of God if we were to cultivate a passionate, worshipful, renewed love for Christ? The world would be shaken by a church that was both marked privately and publicly and walked in the fear of the Lord with a repentant and contrite heart, a contrite recognition that He is almighty, that He is holy God. And it's in this context of this simply stated framework that Peter makes his appeal to us to be witnesses Endure suffering. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. And then he makes his appeal. Always being prepared, verse uh, 3.15, the last half of it. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. His instruction, you have to pay attention to it. He says, always be prepared. And this means that true followers of Christ should expect, they should pray for, and they should cultivate opportunities to share the gospel. Let me break those down for you. We expect opportunities. Sometimes Christians call these divine appointments. These may be with people you know very well in your family, at work, at school, or they could be with perfect strangers. But we expect that God is going to send people our way who need to hear the gospel. We should expect that if we're truly believers in Jesus Christ. Secondly, however, we should pray for such opportunities. All of us should look at our lives and ask when the last time we spoke to anyone about Christ was. And we should ask God to orchestrate opportunities to speak to people, especially our friends and our family that we're most intimately associated with. And we should believe that God will answer that prayer in miraculous ways. We mustn't sit apathetically by as people who 
the people we love, they just perish without Christ. We can't make anyone believe. You can't twist their arms so hard behind their back that they say uncle and then say Jesus. But we have to cry out to God with bitter tears for their ears to be opened and their hearts to be softened to receive the message of the gospel. Let me tell you what uh, Charles Spurgeon said. It wouldn't be a Mark Sharp sermon with us, Charles Spurgeon quote. But let me let me tell you what Spurgeon said that that is so convicting and and analyze your your intentionality of sharing the gospel against this quote. Spurgeon in his his unique way said if sinners be damned at least Let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with their arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. May God help us all. We don't just expect and pray for those opportunities. We must cultivate opportunities to open doors to, uh, or pray, cultivate ways to open doors to proclaim the gospel to others. When we say we should expect and pray for divine appointments, that doesn't just mean that we should sit with our arms folded waiting for God to send the lost to us. God, I just, I was at home all day long watching SpongeBob and you never sent one sinner to me for, to, to tell the gospel. I must be off the hook. No. The, the, the modern church is in so much trouble because we spend so much time within our building going on live on Facebook and saying, come, 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 come. And that is not what Christ told us to do. He said, go, therefore, and make disciples. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Comparatively, listen, I, I have never been a farmer. I, I don't do anything with agriculture. But I know this. I'm smart enough to know this. Comparatively, cultivating is much more difficult than harvesting. And without cultivating, there will never be a harvest. Cultivating means filling yourself with Scripture frequently so that you'll have something relevant to share with others when the opportunity arises. You can't have a layer of dust on your Bible. Never think about the Word of God and expect to have anything meaningful to share with somebody who has questions about the Gospel. It means being able to communicate, even in simple terms, what the Gospel is. When we talk about the Gospel, do you know what we're talking about when we talk about the Gospel? And maybe even more importantly in our culture you got to be able to communicate what the gospel isn't. It means constantly growing in your love and your surrender to Jesus, as we've already mentioned. In other words, listen to me carefully, you cannot make a nominal religious contribution of your life and expect to have a faith that is attractive or compelling to anyone. The people in Peter's time attracted so much interest because literally, not metaphorically, literally, they abandoned everything so that they might have Christ. To the point where many of them died. And someone would say, hey, did you hear what happened to Joe? Man, he he got part of that new Christian sect. And they told him to renounce it and proclaim his allegiance to Caesar and he wouldn't do it. They killed him, man. Would that not get your attention if that happened in your workplace? Lastly, you have to, to cultivate these opportunities, you have to actively involve yourself with people who don't know Christ. We should not be a Christian subculture that bars entry to anyone who is not a part of us. I mean, obviously the church, we're going to regulate membership because the Bible tells us to, but I'm talking about in our personal lives, we should have lots of unsaved friends. So you'll have access to them. And that opportunity will arise and you'll be able to share. 
Another thing to look at is when Peter says that, that we prepare to make a defense, he's using legal terminology. In a culture that routinely hurls accusations against God as both creator and Lord, as, uh, or as creator and redeemer, and it hurls accusations against Christ as Lord, it, it hurls accusations against his church as a harbor of salvation, we must be ready to counter their lies with the truth of the gospel. We can't possibly be ready to do this by simply being churchgoers who punch the clock every Sunday morning, you know, from 10 to 11.30. We have to be witnesses of Christ. Now think about that legal term. A witness is someone who, under oath, I promise to tell the whole, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. As a witness is someone who, under that oath, is responsible to tell about what they've seen, what they've experienced, so that the truth will prevail. And Christ says in Acts 1.8, that upon the coming of the Holy Spirit to us, that he will make us his witnesses in all the earth. We've been summoned. You have received legal summons to come and testify on Christ's behalf. And every one of us, as we talked about the men's meeting yesterday in here, knows that one of the Ten Commandments is you shall not bear false witness. And how many of us, by the way we live at work and the way we live in this church building, are bearing false witness out there of the reality of Jesus and his gospel? But we're not done. The implications become much more grave when we realize that the word uh, for witnesses in, in Acts 1.8 is the Greek martus. And martus is the same word we get, uh, the same root where we get the word martyr. To be a witness, by biblical definition, is to pledge your life's blood for the testimony of Jesus Christ. We, as believers, we live and we die for the defense of Christ if we are true believers. Also, we're told by Peter to make a defense to anyone who asks. We do not discriminate on the basis of anything. It doesn't matter what flavor of sinner you were before you came to Christ. We do not discriminate. You are, you are welcomed to come to Christ, bring all your sin, forsake it at the cross, repent and believe and go on in new life in Jesus. This is what uh, Acts 2.21 says. It says, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Not just the the people with the, you know, socially acceptable sins, but the ones with the really gross, uh, scandalous sins too can come to Christ and believe. But we make our defense based on the reason for the hope that is in us. As Peter says, if we present, and we will have to, it's part of the gospel, if we present the realities of wrath and judgment and hell, we do so as a springboard to joyfully proclaim the remedy that Christ provides. We do so to show them that, that though God's justice is real, that they can escape it by appealing to God's grace. We don't take a superior stance against sinners, We don't say, I thank God that I'm not like any of those. Because guess what? If you have a mirror in your purse or your pocket or pull it out, look at it, and you'll see a sinner sitting there. All of us are sinners too. All of us are sinners too. And the entire church with great enthusiasm said, Amen. Amen. And this leads to Peter's next point. As we share the gospel, we must do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. There is never an excuse for being unloving or a religious bully, putting others sinners in their place. You know why? Because final judgment is God's prerogative alone. He gets to decide who's in and who's out. The last thing, take a note, the last thing heaven needs is another social media keyboard warrior whose ministry is dunking on the lost and and the depraved and, and doling out sick burns. 
That is not what we're called to. We give a reason for the hope that is within us. Paul said this in another place. In, or, or in, in 2 Timothy 2.24 he said, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. We must remember what God saved us from in order to offer it to anyone else. Methodist pastor D.T. Niles famously said years ago, Evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. And the goal of this gentleness and respect is not just niceness, winsomeness. It's not marketing on behalf of the church. It's so we can maintain, Peter says, a good conscience before God. Peter says that the result of this that will be when we're slandered. Did you notice what he said there? When we're slandered. He didn't say if you're slandered. Into the rare circumstances that you might be slandered for the gospel. No. He says, with the expectation that you will be when you're slandered, that it will be to the shame of those who are doing the slandering. If you do it with gentleness and respect and, and, and maintaining a good conscience. This doesn't mean that they'll just feel bad, that the lost will feel bad about their unrighteous accusation. They're not going to say, ah, gee, gosh, I feel bad for, you know, making fun of, of Jesus, making fun of your religion. That's not what he's saying. It's, it's actually means that their treatment of you as a truthful ambassador, a truthful witness, one who is proclaiming the truth, that, that their, their poor treatment of you will add to their just condemnation on the last day. The shame will not be temporary, fleeting, an emotion. It will be ultimate as they reap the sad reward of their rejection of the Savior. And Peter concludes our passage like this, verse 17. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Now notice a couple of things here. First, doing good doesn't always mean that our noble efforts will be regarded as such. You've heard the sarcastic term that no good deed goes unpunished. Well, that's never more true than in the proclamation of the gospel. And why is that? Why do people don't not at least give us brownie points for what we're trying to do? The answer is simple. It's because the world hates God. Well, they, my neighbors don't really hate God. They just they're just not religious. They don't No, no, no. The Bible makes it clear over and over Jesus from the lips of Jesus himself that those who reject God hate God. And because they hate God, by extension, they hate anyone who would dare declare his truth and stand for the honor of his great name and the honor of his cause. And secondly, Peter tells us in verse 17 that suffering doesn't indicate, this is good news, get ready, suffering never indicates that we are outside of God's will, necessarily. Now, you can be outside of God's will and suffer, but just because we're suffering doesn't indicate that we're outside of God's will. On the contrary, it often shows that we're in the very center of God's will. Now, how can you say that? Well, open your Bible to Daniel. Read about these three Hebrew children named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Read about a few passages later of Daniel who was thrown into a den of hungry lions. Go to uh, Acts chapter 7 and read of Stephen who proclaimed the gospel with clarity and he was stoned for doing it. And then look to the cross, lift your eyes to the cross and see what Jesus suffered as he gave his life for the salvation of the world. The entire New Testament promises both that those who pursue godliness obediently will be mistreated and despised, get used to it. But it also promises, more importantly, that those who are despised, those who are persecuted, those who are mistreated, will be vindicated by God. Many of us resist being bold witnesses because it might result in misunderstanding or rejection by people we care about. But we must care more about Christ and his kingdom 
than anything else. We have not suffered the level of persecution that other believers had, so let's be honest about that, but we might someday. We might someday. The stakes of your Christianity in 15, 20, 50 years might be much, much higher than they are now. Regardless of that, the promises of Jesus should assure us that the reward of our allegiance to him far outweighs any threat of man. Amen? Let's stand. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your promise. We thank you that you are watching over us, that you have called us to participate in calling this world to bring glory to you by submitting to your lordship. And Lord, we come to you with hearts that that require repentance, Lord. We have not obeyed you. We have not gone forth with your message. And even when we had, we've, we've done it to much less of a degree, much less passion to do so. And so, Lord, we pray that as we, like we've done the other things, the scriptures, prayer, and worship, God, as we intentionally move our lives towards towards proclaiming your gospel, Lord, we pray that you would help us, God, convict us, bring opportunities to us, God, and help us to to engage with you to a degree that creates new opportunities, cultivates new opportunities. And Lord, we lay ourselves before you once again, pledging our lives to your lordship, making our allegiance to you, God. And we ask that you would use us for the glory of your great kingdom, the expansion of your truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We can have our uh, communion assistants come forward to help us with the uh, table. That'd be great. This, uh, if, you know, every message I ever preach is deeply flawed because it comes through a deeply flawed man. But if nothing that I've been able to say today has motivated you in joy to go proclaim the gospel to those that need to hear it, may this table do that very thing. May it, as you remember what Christ has done to purchase your salvation, you who were so unworthy, you who were a sinner, you who were a rebel against God, you who once hated God, and yet God chose you, he predestined you before the foundation of the earth, and and called you to his own side to be one of his. And so I I want you to just meditate on that. Think about what his broken body means. Think about what his spilled blood means for you and for the world, to all of those who believe. And come and and rejoice in the fact that you have been redeemed. And think about those who, who also need the redemption that is only available in Christ. So in a moment, we're going to invite you to come. But I want to say, as we always do, perhaps you're here and your relationship with God is is a mess. It's non-existent. When I say it's a mess, I don't mean that that you have struggles. We all have struggles. I'm just talking about you, you have not truly made a commitment of your life to Jesus. No matter what religious commitments you've made, you've not really made a commitment of your life to Jesus. And as we do every week, we want to encourage you to just remain where you are. This this has no meaning for someone who has not, uh, you know, come to the to Christ uh, for His Lordship and for His holiness. And um, we, we're not doing that just to build a wall around the table and, and keep you from coming. What we are doing is we're, we're hoping that you, in your in your sitting in your seat, will think about what we're saying, the glories of, of Christ's gospel, and that you will come to Him and receive His grace. We would love to talk to you about that, Pastor David, Pastor Gabriel myself we would love that would make our day and make our month for to be able to share the gospel with you but for now don't come the bible says that those who come unworthily who eat and drink unworthily actually eat and drink condemnation judgment on themselves and that's not what we want for you we want you to know we're praying for you that you come to know jesus so that you can celebrate with us but for the rest of you come forward receive these elements take them back to your seat and we'll share them together in just a moment The Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthian church, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the bread together.
In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. Now, can you just give thanks for the inexpressible gift of Jesus' blood and body and also ask him to help you and to create opportunities for you to share this wonderful gospel this week. Father, we thank you for what you've done. God, you did what we could never do. When we were constantly complicating our lives, Lord, you were providing a saving solution to all of our sin, to the threat of death, to the torment of the devil. You provided a solution, and that solution was your own suffering, your own blood, God, your own death, your burial. God, how can we resist anything that you would ask of us as you have paid so great a price? And so, Lord, we do pray for you to just orchestrate divine things, divine conversations, divine appointments, God. You orchestrate them and help us to wisely cultivate them, Lord God, and to not accept uh, God, our, our, our God, just uh, resistance anymore. To not accept our rejection of your command anymore, but to do it joyfully, with the hope that there will be many that our, through our efforts will be able to present to you in the last day as those who have trusted in you. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would place your hands in a receiving position, I just speak this benediction over you, coming from Paul's uh, words to the Ephesian church as he was about to be arrested. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You're dismissed.